Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, February 13, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. In this talk, historians Martha S. Jones and Eric Foner discuss how free African-American activists fought for citizenship in the decades before the Civil War. Um, I'm very happy to be here to discuss this wonderful book, Birthright Citizens, with Martha Jones. Um, and I uh, urge you all to uh, pick up a copy for yourself when the uh, event is over out in the bookstore here. So let me start with a basic question. What exactly is birthright citizenship? Thank you very much. Um, Well, I think most often we associate birthright citizenship with the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Um, Ratified in 1868, um, it is the moment in which birthright citizenship is constitutionalized, we like to say. Um, And it is a moment in which um, four-plus millions of former slaves and free African-Americans um, become uh, unequivocally citizens of the United States. I just add a bit and say, um, of course, that uh, we could go back to the original Constitution of 1787. Some of you will know this particular provision, which requires the president to be a natural-born citizen of the United States. For some people, this is the starting place for a discussion of birthright. Um. But so that means that every single person after the 14th Amendment, every single person born within the boundaries of the United States is a citizen? Well, not quite. (laughs) Of course not. Um, What would I write a book about? Um, No, seriously, though, there is language in the uh, 14th Amendment um, that exempts from birthright status people said to be um, not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. What does that mean? Well, Congress has a few things in mind. Um, it has um, in mind the children of um, foreign diplomats mm-hmm. who might just coincidentally have children in the United States. They are not birthright citizens. Um, it has in mind the children of um, occupying armies. Um, and well, it we has, haven't had an occupying army in quite a while. Not that I'm aware. Not yet. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> But also um, on the mind of Congress members are are Native Americans who in this period still enjoy um, to an important degree sovereignty um, as independent nations and Native people who are associated with those nations are not deemed citizens in one grand gesture. We may go into this later, but the whole question of Native Americans is awfully complicated. The Civil Rights Act, as you know, of 1866, which also establishes birthright citizenship, says it doesn't apply to Indians not taxed, mm-hmm. which is a kind of weird way of, of putting it. Uh, that word language is not in the 14th Amendment. No. So it's a little unclear in the 14th Amendment. And a Native American who's not living on a reservation, right. is that person a, a citizen if he's born outside? Anyway, we won't go, we'll go to that later. Um, so why is this controversial? It's been, in the, uh, it's been in the Constitution since 1868, as you said, but it seems to be... Um, uh, controversial today. Indeed, as everybody knows, uh, back last fall, uh, President Trump 
um, declared that uh, by issuing executive order, he could exempt children of undocumented, children born to undocumented uh, immigrants from the 14th Amendment. Is that unusual to have controversy about who is covered by this? Um, it turns out no. Um, so Birthright Citizens is about um, a first chapter in what I would say is a um, long right, mm-hmm. and um, ever-present history of controversy around birthright. Former slaves claiming their birthright citizens takes many decades for them to actually realize that goal. Um, but after that chapter, if you will, um, we'll um, now have to think about the children of Chinese immigrants um, who are said by some to be um, exempt because they are not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. They remain somehow loyal to the emperor of China, even as they well, are born. Well, and their parents could never become and citizens. And their parents could never become citizens. were not born here. Right? Exactly. Um, by the early 20th century, um, in the era of U.S. empire, um, Puerto Rico, um, Guam, the Philippines, these are going to be examples of places where Congress now is going to determine um, who is a citizen, who is not, and by what terms. So we could say it's not a new question today. It just has a new character. It's, it's uh, very complicated. Um, no European nation today has birthright citizenship in the set way that the United States does. But uh, I heard you say earlier today, Latin American countries do. Is that correct? It, birthright is still the predominant regime in the Americas today. Okay. Well, with all that as a background, let me ask you then, uh, why did you decide to write this book? Was it because of the current controversy or is it because of uh, earlier work you'd done or research interests or et cetera? Um, so, no, I don't know, of course, when I begin this book many years ago, that um, it would come out in the midst of a, a political and a humanitarian crisis. Um, but I do know that um, we had given far too much weight to um, a notorious U.S. Supreme Court decision, Dred Scott versus Sanford. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1857 um, had opined that uh, no black person, be they enslaved or free, could be a citizen of the United States. That was the conclusion of Chief Justice Taney. And my sense was that um, we really hadn't scratched the surface sufficiently on Dred Scott. We had never really looked closely, um, frankly, at how African Americans viewed the question. And once I begin to um, get beyond Dred Scott, if you will, I discovered that there is a long debate um, that precedes Dred Scott and that Tawny is just a small Mm -hmm. bit of that story. If somebody said to you, a student, a professor... um, were free black people citizens of the United States before Dred Scott? What, what would you say? Yes or no? Uh, is that... I'd say that's the wrong question. <laughs> All right. That's not a good question. <laughs> I'd say that's the wrong question, right? That um, the history of citizenship is the history of the, the contest, right? It is a history of people um, who claim a status, who aspire to a status, who organize and struggle to attain it, um, Sometimes free African-Americans were citizens, um, like when they were sailors, Mm -hmm. and they would carry Seamen's Protection Certificates 
federal government documents that said they were citizens. Um, and on the other hand, as you well know, um, they couldn't be postal carriers because they were deemed to be non-citizens in postal terms. So and they couldn't serve in the militia, which mm-hmm. is another uh, kind of citizenship thing. And apparently most of the time, although not always, the government refused to give them passports. Passports is kind of uneven, right. and the meaning of passports changes over mm-hmm. time. Um, but you're right. That's another place where... Um, the federal government seems to give with one hand and take with another. But they could vote in a number of states anyway, Absolutely. not a lot. But uh, mm-hmm. so it, it's it's complicated, as 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 we've said. Um, what of, now the Constitution, as you mentioned, talks about uh, natural born citizens, but it uses the word citizen here and there, just you know, like the comedy clause, the citizens of one state, another. But it. It never defines really what the right of the rights of if, if you're a citizen before the Civil War, is that a a status that gives you a lot of rights, or is it just a kind of uh, you know uh, empty category, so to speak? It doesn't give as many rights, certainly as we associate with mm-hmm. citizenship today. Um, however, there are some important rights. Dred Scott is a great example, right? Dred Scott. Um, loses his case in part because the court says only citizens can sue in federal courts. And so citizenship has meaning. If you're someone who's trying to bring a freedom suit like Scott, you're now barred from federal courts. So I would say that's not nothing. The other thing I discover is that um, many states incorporate into their own provisions, for example, around the right to vote. I write about Maryland and Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And in Maryland, the right to vote is bestowed upon people who are U.S. citizens, 21 free mm-hmm. white men. So, in fact, citizenship does, U.S. citizenship does count for the right to vote, just not in, um, it's not a requirement that's imposed by the federal authorities, it's right. in, imposed by the state. But there are other states where you can vote without being a citizen if you ever declared Absolutely. your purpose to be naturalized yeah. in the future. And for white men, um, the bar is pretty low in a Mm -hmm. state like Maryland, which is to say you come into a local courthouse, you renounce your allegiances Mm -hmm. um, to foreign authorities, and you can vote. Mm -hmm. Now, this it sounds like we are, that this is a book about laws and constitutional amendments, which it is in a way, but really that's not the core of it. Um, Professor Jones has both a PhD in history from a distinguished university, and a a, a law degree from another great university, um, which is unusual. Very few scholars have both those degrees. But so my question is, how does that affect the way you approach this question? You seem to be writing differently than a lot of legal scholars do, uh, but also you know a lot more about the law than most non-legal historians do. So um, your particular combination of talents here, how is it reflected in the book? I think the thing um, that's most important, especially early on, is that I not only had a law degree, I used to be a lawyer. That's true. And um, I missed the courthouse. Um, I don't miss (laughs) everything about it, but I missed the courthouse. And um, so this project, in a sense, gave me the opportunity to go back to the archives of a local courthouse, in in this example, Baltimore City, and to... Um, immerse myself in kind of the day-to-day workings of a courthouse. And so this is not um, 
I'm not the first person to do that, but it's to say this is quite different as a research approach than, say, reading the decisions of Supreme Court justices or reading treatises or acts of Congress. I do all of that, um, but then I want to test those ideas against what, in fact, African Americans are doing in a local courthouse every day. It's really sort of legal history, but at the grassroots, so to speak, rather than in the Supreme Court. How did ordinary people relate to the law? How did they try to utilize the law for their own purposes? How did they try to claim greater rights within the law? But the the focus is on this free black community of Baltimore and the city of Baltimore. So why did you choose to focus there when these issues are presumably all over the place? Um, The first... uh I'm still interested in Dred Scott, and I want to and I want to rethink Dred Scott, um, mm-hmm. not from a sort of intellectual history perspective, but I really want to know what Justice Taney knew about free African Americans. Mm-hmm. I wanted to understand um, what did he understand? Did he himself understand the implications? And so Taney is a Baltimorean, um, and so being in the courthouse, being on the streets, if you will, of Baltimore. I think gave me some new insight into him. He turns out not to be the only distinguished legal uh, thinker of the period um, in Baltimore. So that's part of it. I want to sort of see those people from the ground up. Um, it's also true that Baltimore has the largest free African-American community in the U.S. How many the, free blacks were there? Like it was 25,000 people 000. before the Civil War. Right. So that's um, like one – well, there's about half a million in the whole country, but this is the largest – Urban population, yeah. larger than New Orleans <clears throat> or Philadelphia, mm-hmm. which are oftentimes the places we study when we think about former slaves. Um, I'll also say the archives are great in Maryland, and that <laughs> matters. Um, yes, um, the state had really committed itself decades ago to preserving the court records, and so I could um, find them and use them. And what about Baltimore? You know, every place is unique in its own way. Are you claiming that Baltimore... And the experience there is typical of free blacks in other places or that it just happens to illuminate these questions, particularly, um, you know, strikingly. So I think we have more work to do to know whether or not Baltimore is typical or exceptional. And what I do know about Baltimore is that it um, really aptly captures the dynamics that are um, shaping free black life everywhere, which Mm -hmm. is to say um, slavery is... um, falling away in the Upper South, for example. Um, Slavery is being influenced by the Atlantic world, and Baltimore is a port city where we can see black mariners Mm -hmm. and other folks coming in and out and influencing the debates that happen there. Um, So Baltimore sits between closer to Philadelphia than to Richmond, I think is the way I put it in the book. Um, So it is really a place where I hoped I could see some of the dynamics that you chronicle so importantly in Reconstruction really unfolding in slow motion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out to be um, possible to do that there. Um, so a lot of the book, as we said, is about how these f- free black people in Baltimore used the local courts despite laws to the contrary. I mean, what was the legal status of these free African-Americans in Baltimore? There were particular codes of law of just specifically for them, right? Sure. So they're subject to what we come to call black laws, Mm -hmm. um, which really regulate 
nearly every aspect of daily life where one can worship, how one can work, um, what kind of property one can own, um, how you travel, whether you can own a gun or a dog, um, how your children might be raised. All of those things are subject to heavy regulation in a city like Baltimore. Um, and this is one of the pressures, right, that leads folks to begin to think about citizenship. So are these laws um, effectively enforced or are they mostly on the books but not enforced? Or what's the, how do the city fathers kind of deal with this? There's a lot of discretion, right, mm. being exercised in a city like Baltimore and a lot of ambivalence about these codes. So um, sometimes they are enforced, um, particularly when there is uh, someone on the scene, for example, um, someone who's looking to get a bounty because they've um, captured a free African-American who traveled without a permit. Um, so there are folks who are um, preying on free African-Americans. And at the same time, in the example of guns, um, I never find anyone being prosecuted for mm -hmm. having a gun without a license, um, mm -hmm. even as um, gun ownership is widespread among African-Americans in this period. Did people talk about the Second Amendment back then? Not they... too much. We're not quite in the Second <laughs> Amendment era. Um, but but there are certainly some of the sensibilities that inform Second Amendment debates even until today. You remember, you know, Baltimore's mob town, right, in the 1820s, mm -hmm. and it's no different by the 1850s, which is to say firearms are um, political instruments in Baltimore, and um, on election day, everything closes up shop um, <laughs> right. because you don't want to be on the streets. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, in his uh, opinions in gun rights cases, has sort of suggested that gun control has racist origins in the United States, right? That it's inherently racist because slaves were unable to own guns. Free blacks were supposed to not own guns, although, as you show, a lot of them did. And then after the Civil War, the, the early black codes barred the former, the former slaves from owning guns. Um, so that actually expanding gun rights is uh, an attack on racism. Does your um, research find that? Uh... I think what I'd add for Justice Thomas is that, in fact, in Baltimore, the only people who are subject to heavy gun regulation, gun control, if you will, um, are white men. Um, and they are precisely because... Because they're rioting Because they're rioting, because um, the way to get people to the polls or the way to scare people mm -hmm. away from the polls um, mm -hmm. is with a shotgun in Baltimore in the 1850s, and mayors will attempt to confiscate, suppress, and otherwise mm -hmm. keep white men from uh, having guns in this period. Now, one thing that the book shows pretty uh, clearly and lucidly is that um, this is a period, let's say the period before the three or four decades before the Civil War, uh, is a period when the idea that the United States is, in some, as the phrase at the time went, is a white man's government was becoming more and more prevalent. And the status of non-white people, including Native Americans, not just that, was becoming more and more precarious in some ways. Is this, uh, how does that affect the legal consciousness of these free blacks in Baltimore who are trying to carve out a place for themselves? 
So I think what you're alluding to is the movement we call colonization. Well, that right? and also Indian removal. Sure, and Indian removal, right, right really two companion stories in right. the 19th century. Um, this view um, that there is no future um, for the nation except as a white man's country. Um, of course, Native people present a problem for that view, as do free African Americans. And colonizationists target the folks I write about um, and scheme, plan, finance. Uh, coerce, um, get behind legislation, all of which is intended to encourage the people I write about to migrate um, not to Indian country, but to Canada or the Caribbean or, most importantly, Liberia and West Africa. And uh, what is the response of the free black community to this, to the rise of colonization? Because colonization is very strong in Maryland. It's much stronger in the Upper South than in the Lower South. Because down there, they said, well, who's going to do the work if we get rid of all these black people? That doesn't make much sense. Uh, somehow in Maryland, it, it, it becomes a sort of way of getting rid of slavery without having to deal with the question of race after slavery, right? Um, Henry Clay, who's from mm-hmm. next door in Kentucky, another border state, president of the Colonization Society. So... Um, so it's very powerful there. And what, what does that mean for these uh, for these free black? It means that the people I write about um, not only experience the rhetoric and the pressure that mm-hmm. comes directly from colonizationists. They watch Indian removal and they believe that they are, if you will, next right in mm-hmm. line for that sort of fate. Um, and they look for um, strategies for tactics. It's important to say in Maryland, there's some people who do. Um, succumb to colonization. They leave. And they're not wrong in the mm-hmm. sense that um, there are many reasons to think that their future is dim in the United States, that mm-hmm. they never will be citizens. But the majority stay. And for me, some of the most um, remarkable stories are really the Baltimoreans who come back, right? Um, who mm-hmm. visit the North, who travel the Atlantic world and still come back to Baltimore where they're going to plant their flag and they're going to make the case. Um, piecemeal, um, you know, day by day in the local courthouse. Um, But they're going to make the case that um, their best um, defense against colonization is their status as citizens of the United States. So one of the uh, really uh, interesting, insightful arguments here is that the concept of birthright citizenship arises in part from the very effort of African-American people who were born here to claim birthright citizenship in opposition to the colonization notion that they're an alien group who aren't really part of, uh, of the United States. So it was, I'll give you a review of your own book here, but one of the more interesting things is, to go back to what I said before, expanding the notion of legal history. In other words, it's not just court cases and that you have people who are making legal claims in conventions, these black conventions for the Civil War always call themselves conventions of colored citizens, right? Mm-hmm. They claim that citizenship right in, in their, public, uh, their public pronouncements. Um, you don't say a lot about the abolitionist movement outside of Maryland. You do start the book with this fellow Yates who wrote mm-hmm. a treatise about blacks' rights as citizens but then you hone in on Baltimore. But I'm wondering, if northern abolitionists, white and black, are also pushing black citizenship, right? Is this affecting what's being said in Baltimore? Or? 
um, increasingly know um, mm-hmm. over the course of these decades that take us to the Civil War. Um, Baltimore is becoming increasing, Maryland and Baltimore becoming increasingly cut off from the North. If, for example, black Baltimoreans participate in some of those early colored mm-hmm. conventions in the 1830s, we don't find them there by the 40s mm-hmm. and 50s, that black laws are really constraining their ability to travel, their liberty, mm-hmm. um, certainly to engage in politics. They are at mm-hmm. risk of being accused of mm-hmm. um, sedition now for um, engaging in any way with um, anti-slavery um, uh, publications or ideas or practices like aiding fugitives. So um, the stakes or the risks for Baltimoreans um, only increase over the course of these decades. Okay, so that's interesting. They stopped going to the north to abolitionist, uh, abolitionist gatherings. Um, in the book, there toward the end, there's a photograph of the uh, statue of Roger Tawney in Baltimore, right? With you in front of it, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Right? You're standing Taken there. Taken by my husband. Right. 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 Okay. My um, photographer. So, um, so tell us a little about Roger Tawney then, uh, the uh, famous or infamous from the Dred Scott decision, um, Thaddeus Stevens, the great radical Republican during Reconstruction, when Tawney died, said, uh, well, I guess it was in the Civil War, said um, uh, Tawney, Dred Scott had um, consigned Tawney to everlasting fame and everlasting fire. He would be, that's it. That's, but what, what do we know about Tawney? I mean, was, was he a slave owner? Tawney had been a slave owner um, early in his life. He inherited slaves mm-hmm. um, in, uh, in the western part of Maryland. Um, he becomes a lawyer. He's trained, um, has no aspirations to be a planter or um, even much of a slaveholder. He um, slowly, gradually um, liberates his slaves. They become what we call term slaves. They basically purchase their own freedom from Tawny. Um, Does he send them off to Liberia or no? He doesn't send them to Liberia, interesting. In fact, he... He schemes with some of them to help them skirt the laws that might require them to leave the state mm. um, and helps them to remain. So he's a kind of paternalistic figure. He's a colonizationist, mm-hmm. right? no question. Um, and by the 1820s, he's already beginning to work out the ideas that get expressed fully in Dred Scott, which is to say he perceives free African-Americans as a particular sort of threat. He perceives them to be incompatible with the future of the nation. And so even when he is, for example, Attorney General of the United States in the 1830s, he's beginning to write opinions um, that would be familiar to those of us who know the broad strokes of the Dred Scott case. So he's been thinking about this question for a long time. The last thing I'll say about Tawny, because it's important to me, is that um, he knows intimately free African-Americans. He's helped some to purchase their own freedom and broker their liberty in the state of Maryland. Um, I find him signing off on a travel permit for a free man of color who's looking to travel to Virginia and work in the spas for the summer. So Tawny is someone who um, not only understands the complex legal maneuverings around these questions, he understands the stakes for human beings um, who are the subject of his rulings. The, uh, I, I infer from the caption here that the statue that you posed in front of is no longer there. Is that it correct? It is no longer there. 
Um, in um, summer of uh, 2017, um, in the wake of um, tragic events in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, in Maryland, um, first um, the mayor of Baltimore, then the governor in Annapolis, and finally um, city officials in the city of Frederick all um, removed Tawny's likeness from the public landscape. Um, so I think the photo of me is in front of the vacant plinth that now oh, I see. Um, That's sits where in, Tawny in used to be. Baltimore, where Tawny um, used to be. Now, it's curious in a sense because um, this is a moment in which um, – what are said to be Confederate monuments are being um, critiqued and coming down and protested. Um, Tawny's not a Confederate. It's no. important to say he remains, he, Maryland remains in the Union. Tawny remains loyal, though he and Lincoln, as you well know, have right. differences. Um, he remains Chief Justice of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court until um, 64. 64 yeah. And when he, he dies on the mm-hmm. bench. Um, so in this example, um, part of what's happening in Maryland is that um, along with the um, excision of Confederate monuments are the excision of some monuments to slaveholders. In Frederick, Tawney comes down, as does Thomas Johnson. Is that a name that rings a bell? No, who is Thomas oh, Johnson? I got him. That's good. Um, <laughs> is the first governor of Maryland and a slaveholder. Uh-huh. And so um, in, in Maryland, the, the taking down of monuments um, extends beyond Confederate mm-hmm. uh, figures to slaveholders, at least some of them. Now, you said, uh, speaking since Tony is mostly known for Dred Scott, uh, you said a little bit before, I think, that uh, maybe people have overemphasized the impact of Dred Scott. Every history class mentions Dred Scott at least a little bit, but uh, so it wasn't as important as people think? Well, not for the questions that I'm asking. Why? Um, Because when I look into the uh, records of the local courthouse, when I ask what do African Americans do in response to Dred Scott, what happens after Dred Scott is decided in uh, March of 1857, the answer is nothing. Um, that uh, African-Americans in a city like Baltimore continue to come into the local courthouse to make their claims, to testify, to win, to lose, um, but really um, evidence no um, curtailment on their rights as a result of Dred Scott. Um, And then when we look farther to lesser federal courts uh, or to high courts in the individual states, what we discover is that very few courts are Um, enthusiastic about fully um, implementing the terms of Dred Scott. Um, They begin to slice and dice and parse in the way lawyers and judges can do so beautifully um, and distinguish the facts Mm -hmm. of Dred Scott from the kinds of cases that free African-Americans are bringing in other jurisdictions. Tawny is... um, deeply disappointed, Um, so disappointed that he um, tells us this in his letters and his personal writings, Um, but also he uh, authors what we often call his supplemental opinion. He writes a second Dred Scott opinion um, on this point, on black citizenship, citizenship, um, and he's waiting Mm -hmm. for um, another Dred Scott case to come before the court so that he can um, once again try and persuade the nation um, that he was right. Mm -hmm. Now, how does the Civil War and emancipation affect all these questions? Your your book doesn't really go in detail into that, but what what happens in the Civil War to this question of citizenship? 
So um, civil, the Civil War is going to kind of be characterized by, I think, three major events. First, in 1862, um, Attorney General Edward Bates is going to be um, asked whether free men of color are citizens of the United States. Um, some folks want them to be able to pilot ships on the coastal waters of the country, and they can't do that unless they're citizens. And Bates for the first time from Washington, um, says yes. He contradicts Tawney. He contradicts William Wirt. That's the first. He says that Dred Scott was wrongly decided. Absolutely. And we're we're going to ignore it. And yeah. he's a great student of the kinds of debates that African Americans right. have been generating for many mm-hmm. decades. Um, but he also says, by the yeah, they're citizens, but they really don't have any citizens Citizenship doesn't actually carry much with it. Not much, yes. Except the right to navigate on the waterways. Mm-hmm. That's not, about it. But what turns out to be not nothing, right? Which no, is right. to say people are making a livelihood. Right. Um, but Bates really changes the terrain for this right. question. Um, 1866, the first of the Civil Rights Acts. Well, you jumped over black troops, which presumably oh, also has something to do with yeah. black citizenship, right? <laughs> okay, thank right? you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I could tell it that way, too, but I'm going to tell it the legal historian way, and I'll come back around. Um, So 1866, the Civil Rights Act will um, Mm -hmm. uh, make birthright citizenship the um, law of the land in congressional terms, and then 1868. But really, um, yes to black troops, but more so what happens in Baltimore, of course, is that people don't wait Mm-hmm. For Bates, they don't wait for Congress. They don't wait for a constitutional amendment. They begin to, in a sense, do the things they'd always been doing, but amplified, right? So now, for example, African-American men um, are going to carry firearms in Baltimore, but they're also going to organize into militias, and they're going to parade publicly in the streets, and they're going to face off with white Baltimoreans. Um, and this is that embodiment of the sense of citizenship mm-hmm. that is um, new, even as the, um, the ideas that undergird it are older ideas. Let me... Um Take out my constitution, Uh-oh. which I uh, carry with me until they take it away. I knew this was going to turn into an exam, by the way. I just want everyone to know <laughs> right. I knew this was going to happen. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Thank you. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, as you said, are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. What does that mean, that they're citizens of both? Is that a problem? Is that uh, uh, are those reinforcing or mutually exclusive? What does that mean, that they're citizens both of the United States and of the state? So we could go back to Dred Scott, right, mm-hmm. and Justice Tawney, um, who um, would like to draw into question not only the federal citizenship, but the state citizenship of free African-Americans, he doesn't actually have the reach um, mm-hmm. to do so, right? He really can't tell Massachusetts who is a citizen Massachusetts, of Massachusetts. yes, that's way. Black Absolutely. citizens here. New Tough York, luck. Right. Pennsylvania. Right. Um, but again, this is, this is murky. And mm-hmm. so, um, and we see um, individuals who are um, a man named Gilbert Horton, who in the 1820s is a citizen of New York, but winds up being um, arrested and detained as a fugitive mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. And Dewey Clinton comes to basically his rescue, right? And um, in government. Congress, the debate that follows is a kind of face-off about whether or not state citizenship and federal citizenship should must be harmonized 
antagonized, um, can be at odds with one another. Um, so the 14th Amendment does that work of resolving mm-hmm. that um, very uneven terrain that people have been navigating for a long time. You're, you're going to read more? From yeah. The Constitution? No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Mm-hmm. What are the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States? Oh, well, we don't really know in 1868. Nobody knows. That's the problem. <laughs> we don't really know. We have some ideas about what it might be. We have wonderful language from the Civil Rights Act of 1866, but I think we don't really know that that's been wholly incorporated into the 14th Amendment, for example. And later, the Supreme not that much later, just a few years later, the Supreme Court basically said, actually, there aren't any, hardly. It's all state citizenship uh, rights, not the federal government. But... Um, Yes, that's a, that's another whole uh, story, which we won't go into here. How this, how the uh, Supreme Court, little by little, whittled away at at all of this stuff. So let, we're going to take questions in a minute, but I want to ask you one other one other thing, which is a big question, which is the relationship of this history to the present. Um, how do we bring this history that you have illuminated so well to bear on our current debates? Um, or does it? Does this history help us understand the present? Uh, or is citizenship so different today than back then that it's really not relevant? I guess the first thing to say is that there's very little in this history that I think helps us with an important point in this moment, which is that murky language about subject to the jurisdiction mm-hmm. thereof. Um, I think that there are clearly different views about that language and what it means in particular with respect to people said to be undocumented immigrants. Mm. Um, But this story will not answer that question for you. On the other hand, if you want to um, uh, kind of situate our debate today um, around birthright and citizenship, what this story does is remind us that um, there really hasn't been a moment in our long history now where citizenship and the question of birthright hasn't been um, a debate a contest, Um, and that we shouldn't be surprised that today in 2019, as was true for former slaves before the Civil War, as was true for the children of Chinese immigrants after the Civil War, as was true for people who occupied um, U.S. territories um, in the era of empire early in the 20th century, um, that this question has been um, a perennial one. Um, It's one that... um, Troubles, plagues, but is characteristic of our democracy. There's nothing illegitimate today right, about people who stand metaphorically at the nation's borders um, or literally mm-hmm. um, and seek to get in. That is the story of democracy and that's the story of citizenship in our country. And we've gotten it wrong before. So um, humility in this moment, I think, is in order because it turns out that we could really we can really blunder on this question and that when we do, it has tragic humanitarian consequences for people as it did for former slaves. Let me um, just uh, read a couple of these questions that have come up. Uh, Here's one that I know is uh, something you have studied a lot. Did any legal discussions occur about women and citizenship? in antebellum America? Certainly. (laughs) A lot. Stay tuned. Um, In 2020, we'll be back. Um, And and talking about a different book, I hope. Um, Professor Jones is working on a book right now about... 
it's called Vanguard, and it is the history of African-American women um, and the vote in the United States. Um, and so here, um, yes, um, we know that American women, black and white, are um, deeply connected to the anti-slavery movement, are part of these communities about which I write, um, and stand in, I would say, different shoes right, than do their male counterparts. Part of what um, was remarkable for me is, is what a male-dominated, if you will, debate this is before the Civil War. Well, Bates, Attorney General Bates, in his opinion, saying black, free blacks are citizens, he then goes on to say, but hey, citizens doesn't mean much. Look at women. They don't have any women rights. Women and children, right? right. In women, one breath. They're citizens. They're born in the United States. They're citizens, but they don't have a lot of legal rights that men do. So citizenship does not mean you are equal, although the 14th Amendment tries to make it that way. That's another whole other question. What surprised you the most when researching the book? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think what surprised me was um, the degree to which the people I write about were engaged with some of these great legal minds of the 19th century. You know, we sort of had these sort of two tracks of legal history, the kind of vernacular, everyday experiences of people like former slaves, and then we had, you know, men who sat in, you know, lofty places and thought lofty ideas. But the folks I write about, it turns out, um, know how to hire a lawyer, know how to pay a fee, um, and know how to engage with those folks. And so I think that surprised me most is how um, persistent they were in that regard. They weren't apologetic. They Even weren't though they shy. have no legal training, most they have, of them, right? They have no tra- you know, and they are training themselves mm-hmm. in part by these engagements with lawyers who um, they ask for opinions. Are they um, black lawyers or are they not allowed at that no, time? They're n- no, well, of course, um, John Mercer Langston. No, um, I mean in Baltimore. But in, ba- but in Maryland, no. There, there's one. There is one black lawyer one in guy. Maryland. He's not quite a lawyer because the court will not admit him to the bar. But he's qualified and he's um, questioned by the bar. And then what happens? Um, he goes to Liberia, where he can be. A, where he, <laughs> he can, can be, really a, be lawyer. a lawyer. Interesting. Um, here's a good one. Should the census incu- include the question, "Are you a citizen"? Mm. Hmm. Oh. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Um, I guess what I'd say is um, having little to nothing to do with this book, um, to the degree that that sort of question and that particular question will discourage people from engaging with the census, um, it only exacerbates a problem that we already associate with the census, which is the problem of the undercount. Right. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I I think it's an interesting question. Um, (laughs) This question was asked in the past. I mean, you go back on Ancestry and you go to the 1840 census, which is now available, and uh, it asks you if you're a citizen. But they wouldn't – in other words, the historical context, though, was very different. There was no danger of people being deported from the country if they gave the wrong answer to this question to the Census Bureau. And I'd say, you know, as a historian, the answer is yes, because we really love that kind of data. We want to know. You know, and we'd love to know those things. But I think as as a political or humanitarian matter, it's a problem. Yeah, and the Constitution does say 
that uh, there should be really a full count of the population for the census. And if you're going to put something in which is going to deter people from answering, you're not going to really fulfill the obligation to have a full count of the total, not just of the citizens, of everybody uh, who happens to be in the country. Were African-Americans in Baltimore able to testify against or sue white persons in Baltimore? The answer is yes. Um, Despite black laws um, that come from the state capitol that um, provide to the contrary, um, I'm able to find um, free African-Americans in ordinary kind of everyday proceedings, um, an assault on the street, testifying, um, succeeding, winning a fine against a white assailant. Um, I find them in insolvency proceedings, testifying against the interests of white creditors, even serving as court um, sanctioned trustees in um, bankruptcy-style proceedings. Um, So the answer is no, they shouldn't, and yes, they do. Actually, they did. Um, Are there any precedents for birthright citizenship? Uh, Did the British Empire practice birthright citizenship uh, before the American Revolution, in other words? Well, the principle certainly comes out of English law. Um, so we can recognize that. And then it depends on who you ask, right? Justice Tawney, in, the, in his supplemental opinion, goes back to English law and says, absolutely not, right? It, to the degree that um, birthright is not a universal principle um, in um, England, African-Americans, black Brits, he would say, were not um, birthright citizens in, in the UK. So Did they even call themselves citizens over there? I think I thought they were subjects. Subjects, yeah, you're right. But it's the same basic yeah. idea. Well, uh, James McCune Smith, a very prominent African-American abolitionist here in New York, when Dred Scott came out, he, issued, he wrote a long refutation of it going back to ancient Rome mm. and trying to track laws on this thing. Of course, the concept of citizenship has changed so much over the centuries that um, just to plug it, you can't just plug some quotation from 700 years ago into the current debate and assume that they're talking about really the same thing. No, and your point earlier about um, the uh, Constitution of 1787, which really doesn't take, um, isn't troubled or preoccupied by who is defining who is a citizen, who is not, um, as my former colleague Bill Novak has said, you know, it's a non-question in a lot of ways. Um, African-Americans put it on the table because they need it. It's a non-question, but as you know, the same people, basically, almost, who wrote the Constitution a few years later wrote a naturalization law which tried to be very precise about who could and couldn't become a naturalized citizen of the United States. Right. The word white um, enters um, the legal lexicon in a remarkable way in 1790. You have to be white to become a naturalized citizen. Absolutely. Until 1870. Right. um, When Congress will um, now insert language about African-descended people and make them eligible for naturalization also. There were two groups of people in the world excluded from naturalization. One was non-whites, which is a majority of the population of the world, and the other was holders of titles of nobility. Mm. If you were a British aristocrat and you wanted to emigrate to the United States, you would have to renounce your title to become a citizen of the United States. Different categories of people. No titles of nobility (laughs) in this world. Coming from Africa (laughs) like that. Um, You use Baltimore as a lens to survey the emergence of birthright citizenship. When the 
14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. How did the populations of various regions of the country respond? How did people, well, how did people, when the 14th Amendment is ratified or being considered, respond to putting birthright citizenship into the Constitution? I think it's understood right, to be an extension of the project that is the abolition of slavery, mm-hmm. first and foremost. Thank you. Um, so, um, and yet it is um, more provocative right, than um, merely deeming people free, which the 13th Amendment does. Um, so I think it opens up a new puzzle, perhaps a puzzle we're still wrestling with today. But there was a lot of opposition. I mean, in the South. Uh, Absol- the absolutely. White, and, the, and states that don't ratify and, and, and don't want to ratify the 14th opposed Amendment. opposed to this. Exactly. Uh, in fact, some Southern states didn't even want to ratify the 13th Amendment because they could, abolishing slavery because they said that the second section giving Congress the power to enforce it might lead to Congress declaring black people citizens. And they didn't want that. So this was a very fraught issue in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. How were children born to American parents abroad viewed prior to the ratification of the 14th Amendment? I don't know the answer to that, Eric. Do you? Well, I assume they're considered citizens. I don't know. It's not citizens by... If their parents are citizens. Right. So they're not citizens by virtue of birthright. It's important to say. Right. Congress has the capacity um, to... Um, regulate and to right. deem all sorts of people citizens of the United States by operation of law. Right. Um, so they're not citizens by birthright, but Congress... Are um, children born to American parents overseas citizens, citizens today? today? Yeah. yeah. But but you have to act on it, right? They have to act on Romney, it. Romney, wasn't he born in Mexico? No. John McCain in the Canal Zone. John, uh, but that Canal Zone, God knows what that is or was, <laughs> what country that belonged to. But yeah, it's all uh, very complicated. What can I say? Um <laughs> Do you see a possibility for retroactive stripping of citizenship should it be decided that children born to, quote-unquote, undocumented immigrants are not citizens? Could that be retroactive? I don't envision a social order in which we all of us who enjoy birthright citizenship today are stripped of our citizenship and become subject to a new regime. Um, that doesn't mean you're an optimist. Uh, well, I am uh, tonight. Um, and but but that doesn't mean right that um, those of us who enjoy birthright today couldn't be grandfathered in right mm-hmm. and um, remain citizens of the United States and still our children or our grandchildren um, would become subject to a different sort of regime. That is possible. That certainly is the, the, the example out of Europe, right? That it is possible to draw a line and to shift the terms. And European countries have changed their laws on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last 20 years, one after another have abandoned automatic birthright citizenship. It can be done. I don't think it's retroactive anywhere. No. But uh, it's certainly for children born there today whose parents are not citizens of the country. Uh, they are not automatically citizens by any means. Um, the last country to get rid of birthright citizenship was uh, Ireland, actually. Ireland. And even in Ireland, they're rethinking it today. Mm-hmm. Um, this is now Latin America does have it, but in terms of Europe, this is an example of uh, that often uh, abused concept: American exceptionalism. We are exceptional among the industrialized societies, basically, in uh, having still birthright citizenship, and it's a. Um, 
to my mind, it's a, it's a statement about American society that, it is, our, that to be an American is not defined by religion as it is in some countries. It's not defined by kind of linguistic heritage as it is in some countries. It's not defined by a kind of ethnic heritage going way, way back. Anybody can be a good citizen of the United States, no matter where you came from, no matter who you are, no matter who your parents are. So it would be, I think, unfortunate to abandon that principle, even though there are people who want to do that, right? Yeah, and and um, even bad citizens can be citizens of the United States, right? right? Even the oh. children, which is to say, right? In any generation, mm-hmm. um, we know that there are um, said to be um, people who are despised in this nation, um, and that is a, 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 a perennial story, a changing story across time. But even the children of the despised when born in the United States, are mm-hmm. citizens of the United States. We don't have a litmus test. Um, and that's um, a distinction, I think, that our democracy should be um, proud of rather than apologetic for or sheepish about. I, I think you see in many countries in the world some of the, um, how should we put it, uh, unfortunate consequences of grounding citizenship in some sort of exclusionary concept, whether it's race uh, or or ethnicity or religion, and therefore drawing this very strong boundary around it, which often goes along with real, you know, dislike of people on the other side of the boundary. So, uh, again, we have to be very cautious that we don't fall into that anymore. Um, One final question. Last time I spoke to you, not last time, but one time recently I spoke to you, you were planning to write a biography of Chief Justice Tawney. Is that still in the cards down the road? It still is. And so I'm out uh, workshopping um, a first piece um, which looks at um, the memory of Chief Justice Tawney, very much inspired by mm-hmm. um, the removal of the monuments in mm-hmm. Maryland. But um, it's really a fascinating story about um, the way in which Tawney's memory has been used, abused, promoted, exploited um, over um, a long period of time. The um, primary um, villain, if you will, in the 19th century is none other than Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Because Douglass um, uses Tawny and Dred Scott as a kind of foil, right, when he wants to challenge the nation and say, are you sure you want to go that low? It's looking a lot like Dred Scott. You're sounding mm-hmm. a lot like Roger Tawny. So um, there's a story there about that. But ultimately, I wanted to write a biography of Tawny because I had met these African-American figures in Birthright Citizens who knew Tawny, um, who had a point of view about him themselves. And so it's a biography, but it's a biography intended to tell the story of a man who was um, unequivocally responsible for um, wedding racism and law um, in the United States um, together in the 19th century. I wanted to tell his life from the perspective of African-Americans um, people who were affected by the kinds of decisions that Tawny made. Um, so that's where I'm going with that. So All right. thanks for we'll, asking. Uh, we'll look forward to it. So let me thank Martha Jones and congratulate her on her book, and thank you all for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.